Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Monday, September 21st, 2020. Today, we start a short mini-series on ultrasound in women's health. Ultrasound is a topic that comes up all the time in these podcasts, and I thought it'd be interesting to take a step back and talk about how ultrasound came to be the most common imaging used in women's health, both for pregnancy and for gynecology. In today's podcast, the anatomy ultrasound, your baby's first physical, Steve Inglis and I discuss ultrasound in pregnancy, specifically the detailed anatomy ultrasound done around 20 weeks of pregnancy. Some people call it the big ultrasound. Steve is one of the maternal fetal medicine specialists in my practice, and he trained in the middle of the explosion of ultrasound advances in fetal imaging. So I think you'll enjoy his perspective on this subject. On Thursday, I'm joined by Anna Montiagudo to discuss the evolution of ultrasound in OBGYN, including, of course, ultrasound in gynecology. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Steve Inglis. Steve, welcome to Healthful Woman. It's great to finally have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Nadie. Although we work together every day, we couldn't actually be in the same room at the same time. So we're doing this over the phone, even though we're both sitting at work. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's not even COVID related. This is just general scheduling things. Exactly. The usual chaos of New York City. Steve, just so our listeners know, you know, who you are, a little bit about you. Tell us, you know, a little bit of your background. Where are you from? You know, where'd you train? How'd you end up from where you started to here? Sure, sure. So I grew up not in New York City, but outside in Westchester and went to college down in New Orleans. Then I came almost back home for medical school in uh, New York Medical College, and then did my residency up in Albany, New York. And then when I finished the obstetrics and gynecology residency, I felt like I really wanted to learn much more about obstetrics and maternal diseases and fetal diseases. So I uh, applied to get a fellowship and and got one at Cornell in New York City. Spent two years there, had a fabulous time, and then since then I've been working at various jobs, usually you know for chunks of time all around New York City. Right, and that's the I guess the reason we originally met is because I did my fellowship at Cornell a few years after you, and then just part of the same network, you know, I say hey, do you know Steve Inglis, and you know you were at an affiliate, and then you did your fellowship there. And so we got to meet then. And then who knew years later, we're working together. Exactly. It's a fabulous place we have. <laughs> Pretty cool. How was that transition? Because before where you are now with us at Maternal Fetal Medicine and Carnegie, you were the chairman of a department of a big city hospital. Correct. Right. So so tell, tell us a little bit about that. You know, with time, as I've gotten away from that, from those jobs, I should say, I feel like I did my piece to push ahead on, you know, public health. I literally spent, I think it's 23 years total time really kind of in the trenches trying to push ahead hospitals that, that were dealing with very impoverished patients. And, and I learned a lot. But unfortunately, I kept getting further and further you know, higher and higher positions with more and more responsibility and more and more administrative stuff. And I'm not alone. Lots of people through their career, they end up, you know, in doing administrative stuff that they 
that they don't really, at the end of the day, love doing. And so after all of those years of doing great work, of, of getting places to do better and, and as best they can to you know keep up with the big university hospitals, try to do the same work they do, even in their community hospitals, try to provide the same care. I was just tired of it. I'm 60 now. And I was like, you know what? I, I've, I've struggled enough with all of that. And I looked around and then, then I saw your practice where the goal is very simple. It's, it's to be the best possible medical doctor, not administrator, you know, not, and at least for me, not businessman. It's just try to do the best possible medicine. And thankfully, I, I feel like I never got far away from medicine. I I do know chairmen who are no good at medicine. I literally yeah. saw it, and I was like, I was like, that I don't want to do. I I don't want when I walk in a room for them to say, okay, I need to protect the patient from the chairman. Right. It's, and it's, yeah, so it's thankfully, hard. I yeah, thankfully I like just refused to do that. It always kept my hands you know wet in all of medicine, and and thankfully you know, always had good relationship with Cornell and other big places, so that they were. I could you know stay linked up with those places, but now I get to really focus with your practice and hopefully just do fabulous work every day for patients who have super complicated pregnancies. It's a great challenge. Yep, I love it. Yeah, I, I was it's such an interesting idea that in, in medicine, the way it often works in hospitals and departments is you know someone who's the most prestigious and well-published and great teacher and great doctor you know he or she sort of gets promoted up the ranks but the promotion usually involves a shift in increasing proportion of administrative duties and a decreasing proportion of actual clinical care and teaching and all the things that made them great and so at a, at a taken to an extreme you can have a chairperson who's essentially, an administrator. They, they're not seeing patients. They're not doing operations or, you know, whatever it is, you know, procedures, seeing patients, teaching, doing research, and they're basically just running meetings. And again, it's, it's valuable and it is important work and it can help people. It's not that it's inherently a problem, but it's sort of, they got promoted out of what they do into something else. And I think the really successful ones maybe not necessarily as administrators, but successful ones as doctors are able to maintain that clinical relevance at the same time. Number one, because that's ultimately why most people went into medicine is to take care of patients and do this. And so they don't lose that. And number two, I do think it makes you a better administrator because you understand what it's like for people, you know, sort of speak, you know, on the front lines or, you know, whatever phrase you want to use to explain what the doctors are doing. I think if the, the leadership does not have a good grasp of what's going on, then it becomes hard for them to be leaders as well. Well, I can tell you there's some giant institutions. I don't know if they still do it, but Parkland down in Dallas, Texas, was just, just a giant in the world of OBGYN in terms of discoveries and research and so on. They, at least when I was there, had a rule that the chairman had to be turned over every few years. It wasn't that long. They right, like a term no limit. One was, yeah, there was no one who was stuck there forever. Which you know, you know, I think maybe a good idea. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I mean, my my father was a chairman for a neurology for a very very long time, and he told me that he could never tolerate more than fifty percent administrative. He said if if my job ever got more than, I mean, he said I have to spend at least fifty percent of my time seeing patients and doing clinical care and teaching because otherwise he goes I would just you know he's like I have meetings. He's like I can't stand meetings, and so it's like it's what you do all the time. You have meetings, and so I think he. 
was both very skilled at it, but probably a little lucky that he got into a position that was able to do that. And so he was able to sort of function as a chair for a very long time and still was very busy clinically and people respected him and still do and you know in terms of patient care but also was able to lead a good department because the doctor saw him as one of their own one of their peers and not just some random person who they don't even know if they could take care of patients anymore well we're, we're sure happy you came over to us it's good for us well the saying is you know getting meeting to death you know <laughs> just literally just forever. It's like been a great change of pace for me and you know, different focus and it's such a great place to work with super skilled people. I mean, they're just so great. They're you know, just so good at the work, at you know, clinical care, at judgment, making the right decisions and listening to others, being able to ask questions. It's fabulous. And your commute got a, got a hell of a lot better. This is true. Absolutely. The days of COVID. Now I just walk. Yeah, right. you walk as Even well. Yeah. yeah, but no, no more electric scooters, Steve. Those were those were bad. That's right. <laughs> yeah, electric scooter was was Steve's initial mode of transportation until it broke you. <laughs> <laughs> it broke Stephen too. I thought it'd be really neat for us to talk today about the anatomy ultrasound, the ultrasound that we do in the middle of pregnancy, either at twenty weeks or at sixteen weeks or both, to look at the baby head to toe. And really because, number one, you and I both trained in the same fellowship where it was very strong in ultrasound. You know, each fellowship has their own strengths. I mean, I don't want to say strengths and weaknesses because they're, they're all, you know, certified and qualified and you have to be above a certain bar for all aspects of maternal field medicine. But certainly some are more strong in some areas than other others. And at Cornell in particular, a lot because the the person in charge, both when you were there and I was there, Frank Chervenak, Dr. Chervenak was really a, a leader in ultrasound. And so it was a very strong program in terms of ultrasound training. So that's number one. And number two, you know, I've been around the block and you've been around the block a couple more times and I've been around the block, but just how much it's changed over the past, you know, 10, 20 years. And I thought that'd be a really neat perspective about ultrasound and what we can see and what we used to be able to see and what what women should you know expect understand and what's going into that ultrasound and so I thought that'd be pretty cool for us to talk about that in terms of the the evolution of this anatomy ultrasound I think you know if you can maybe take us back to when you started training what were you seeing at the time compared to what you're seeing now Anyone who's listening to this might be a concern when they hear this, but the reality was back when I was being trained, they literally had an ultrasound machine in labor and delivery that was donated by one of the doctors, and it was just basically a piece of junk. And the training and how to do an ultrasound was just take it in there, you know how to do it, and you just literally figure it out on your own. And in those days, it was very, very crude. You were just basically trying to make sure there is, you know, a head there and which way the baby was facing and, you know, make sure the abdomen was there and there was a stomach bubble that you could see. And that was about it. There really was not anything remotely like what we're doing today. Right. It was like if you were lucky if you could tell them if they were having twins. I myself had a case where they had a diagnosis of twins and that patient had had, I think since it was twins, you know, like seven or eight ultrasounds at three different units with twin pregnancy. And then they can't, the patient came in in the middle of the night and I am a junior resident, but I'm on call. And I, they say, doctor, please evaluate. I can't see the heart rate of one of the twins. I go in there and I'm like, 
I see one looks fine. The other one I can't see very well. I don't know what's going on here. So I call the attending. We rush her back, do a cesarean, and lo and behold, there's only one baby. No, there's only one. There's only one. There's only one. And the patient had so many ultrasounds at different units. They all had weights and sizes. So you could you could just see from that that it's things have just changed so tremendously. Right. And why why is that? Is that is that because skills have gotten better or because just technology of ultrasounds gotten better? It's certainly both. And I would argue that, you know, thankfully there has been people, docs who have been able to, you know, discover amazing stuff over the years. Right. You know, on, on how to do it, on on ways to figure out whether there's a problem with this baby and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. But the other story I wanted to say was another thing that in those days was we routinely had, you know, a baby come out with Down syndrome or come out with this or that or whatever routinely because we only looked at women who were 35. So we would often have babies come out with, with Down syndrome at you know, who were under 35. We were like, oh, well, under 35. That's why we miss all of those. Right. Because you could never see anything on ultrasound that would catch it. Right. And then You'd be in there doing a delivery, and and the baby comes out, and it has some big anomaly, and you literally have to hold it together because because the poor patient is there in the, in just having her child, and you can't say like, holy whatever, you can't. That would that would just like crush her. So you literally say everything's okay, like control your natural response. Just say, everything's okay. Bring the baby over to the warmer. Tell the mom everything is okay. And then slowly over time, let the pediatricians figure out what's happening and then begin to let her know that because you just didn't see the stuff. We, we saw big defects where we just never saw it. And that was the way it was, just it was. It's, I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, because number one, the the actual machine technology and what we call sort of the resolution, for example, which is the ability to see things differently from, you know, one to the next has gotten so much better. I mean, when we look at the old, like, pictures of what people used to see on ultrasound, you're like, oh, my God, how can you possibly see what's going on? That has been a huge improvement. But also, like you said, people done a lot of research. And so there are sometimes very subtle things you would see on ultrasound that if you didn't know to look for them or know to measure them or know to do something with the ultrasound parameters to do something to it, you just wouldn't know that it meant anything. And I think that since there's been a lot of people using and dabbling with and researching ultrasound, we just learned a lot more about how it can be used to identify things. It's not just like taking a photo. You know, it's it's using the clues that we see. Like the classic thing is that nuchal translucency measurement. So that's you know, something at 12 weeks, someone noticed, was able to put together that babies with certain genetic abnormalities have a slightly thicker back of the neck. And you're talking the difference of a millimeter or two. It's not like necessarily something you would look at the baby and say, oh, that baby's abnormal. And once someone figured out, they, all right, we standardized it. This is the picture you take. This is how you take it. This is how you do the measurement. And they came up, they have to do it thousands of times to come up with an algorithm of exactly how thick and how much it raises your risk. And so that took years and years and years and years to develop not because the technology got better, but because the people doing the ultrasound, their knowledge got better. Essentially, over the years, the researchers who actually discovered how to do it slowly but surely figured out basically for the baby from head to toe how to efficiently 
kind of do a physical exam with your ultrasound. Right. And through very specific views, if you're able to obtain those views, you can pretty well rule out chunks of problems that the baby could possibly have, the more common stuff. The very rare stuff that we can't look for, but for the more common stuff, so that over the years they've researched it to the point where it's something that's relatively simple, a relatively simple picture to obtain. It has to be something you can do every day. And and the best example is what you just said is nuchal translucency. When that first came out, this is just me now, Dr. Fox, just me. <laughs> I thought, that's garbage. That's garbage. You can't get that view. That view is too hard. I don't know what they do that's different in England in Dr. Kepros Nicolaitis' lab, but he keeps talking about it and, you know, on and on. And then, and then you know, years later, it's like, no, it's actually easily doable, right. even on patients that are more challenging to get them, you know, whatever. And What you said is also true because if someone goes and gets a 20-week anatomy ultrasound, pretty much at any qualified place, pretty much in the world, but let's just say in the U.S., the images obtained will be nearly identically the same, identical. And, you know, because everyone says, right, this is the way you image the heart. You know, you get this view, you get this view, you get this view, and everyone knows how to get, and that's how they train. And so it's quite standardized. So even though, you know, it's done in different places by different people on different fetuses, obviously, they're going to look remarkably similar. And also, it's just another indicator of how cool it is that humans look the same, like internally, that all of us are built nearly the exact same way is so fascinating that, you know, you look at a hundred fetal hearts and they're, you know, 99 of them will look exactly the same. And it's, it's just amazing that that works out. And you're talking about at 12 weeks, it's going to look the same. This is like, you know, just 10 weeks after conception that the, how embryology works, that these babies, 99% of the time sort of grow and develop in the exact same patterns, which is just, it's always astounding to me that that's how it is. There's obviously variability in how we are in terms of how we look and our behaviors and this, but those organs are built and situated the same way 99% of the time. It's really remarkable. It's, it's absolutely amazing to me to think that the designer of these people who walk around every day was able to start out with a cell, then it have it divides and it divides and divides. And then each of those cells slowly but surely realizes, oh, I need to go this way. I need to grow longer that way. And I'm going to divide some more that way. And now I need to make a pancreas or now I need to make a stomach. And it can all just happen. slowly <laughs> but surely happen. Exactly. And, and, and I don't tell patients this often, but I'm just amazed that it goes correctly as often as it does. I, I say that all the time because when people, you know, when we see an abnormality or and usually conversations when we see like a minor abnormality that doesn't have major consequences. And I tell them, the crazy thing is not that this happens. The crazy thing is that it usually doesn't happen. The fact that it, you know, that it goes right 99% of the time is so remarkable. And I think one of the other things that that brings into play is when it doesn't go right, there's a few reasons it can happen. It can either be just by chance, like, okay, you know, let's say the, the way it's set up is that, you know, just the, the odds of it are 99% it's going to work out and 1% it won't. That's one reason. Another one is there was some sort of like insults, like people are worried, is it what I'm eating, what I'm drinking, some environmental exposure? And the truth is that's probably the overwhelming minority of causes for, for differences. But then what you're talking about, how the cell knows, and that's the DNA. And every year we learn more and more about the connection between 
genetics and what we see on ultrasound, how abnormalities that we've known about for a long, long time, with time, we've learned about the genetics of that. And each year that passes, we come to learn how certain abnormalities have a genetic basis for it that just was undiscovered until now, and we're discovering more and more. And maybe it'll be that all of these things are really genetic. Who knows? But it's just been more and more. And so part of ultrasound has really been coupled with the advances in genetics, and they've gone hand in hand over time, and the link between them has gotten stronger and stronger. What is the like you said, it's sort of like a physical exam, the anatomy ultrasound, looking at the baby head to toe. What What is the goal of that? Like, why do we do that as opposed to just say, hey, you know, let's wait till the baby's born? This is the exact question they asked me on my oral boards. MFM must have been MFM oral boards. They literally said, you know, here's your ultrasound exam. And they gave me a, a video to watch and it was a normal exam. What they were actually doing is we're seeing whether anybody would actually see something that's actually not even abnormal. Right. So, you know, the opposite, the opposite. There's nothing wrong. And right. you're actually saying something's wrong. So you can get into trouble that way too. Right. But since there was nothing to talk about that was abnormal on that sonogram, they then asked, you know, why do you do these in the first place? I would just say, basically, it's, it's an opportunity for us to figure out if there's anything that we actually need to do that will help this kid either during the pregnancy or during delivery, or even long term. Over the years, you know, I can think of cases where we found stuff that we didn't make a big deal about, but then it turns out later on, the kid, you know, when it's, you know, whatever it was, six months or a year old, all of a sudden there's a big problem, and they knew about it, and they they knew there was something going on there, and they're able to intervene because they knew something was going on with that child. So that's why I kind of think of it as a physical exam for the kid early because it's a chance to see what's happening with this kid and see if there's anything that needs to get done. And with time, there's there's even been you know you know some success with fetal surgery so that if you really find some stuff, you could even in the middle of the pregnancy intervene and help out. Pretty limited at this point in time, but there's a few diseases where they actually do have surgeries that they can help out kids right during the pregnancy. And then basically the same thing at, at delivery, you know, there may be something structurally wrong with this with the child where it would be unsafe to go through and have a normal delivery. Or there may be something wrong with the child where the minute it comes out, you need to have very specific people there to release pressure or work on the heart or whatever. And and so you can have a team available to do, you know, and be prepared for it. In those days, they actually, probably the reason they gave me that, that board exam question was because it really wasn't even standard of care. It was not absolutely, you know, everybody must have a detailed anatomic survey. Right. And as it is now, finally, I think everyone agrees that everybody is better off with that. Yeah, I think that it's important for people to realize that when we do this, our expectation is that, you know, 95, 97% of the time, everything's going to be normal, right? Because that's the truth. The babies, most babies are built perfectly fine. And again, normal, when we say that means that what we can see appears normal, right? We can look at the brain and say the brain looks normal, but that doesn't tell us, well, what the baby's intelligence will be, how the baby's going to behave. I mean, like those things, just like if I looked at a child and looked at an x-ray or a CAT scan of their brain, you can't necessarily know that. So when I say normal, I mean, looks normal. Fine. So we expect that, you know, 95, 97% of the time, everything's good. They're going to come in. We're going to say everything looks normal. Everything's good. Have a good day. Go home. 
And then in the other like two to 5% of the time, which is the world we live in. So for most people, they're going to come and get reassurance. And that's the main reason to get the ultrasound. They come in, they're told that, you know, whatever, 18, 20 weeks, everything looks great. Your baby looks wonderful. It gives a certain amount of reassurance that we're not going to have to be dealing with A, B, C, and D. Okay. And then if we see a concern, there's basically the ones that are amenable to some sort of intervention. And again, the intervention, like you said, could be during pregnancy, we do something, which is probably the exception, right? So that we can fix this or fix that or do this or do that or give a medicine or whatever. That's that's the exception. It's possible that sometimes happens. But most of the time, it, it's about planning, right? Planning the rest of the pregnancy, planning the delivery. If this is a baby who's going to have a heart condition, well, it's a lot easier if the if the family has four months to process that, meet with the pediatric cardiologist, meet with the cardiac surgeon, meet with the team in the NICU, you know, deliver at the right hospital with the right doctors available and know that this baby needs it rather than just like after birth, the baby suddenly turning blue and then having to figure it out then, which is, you know, a disaster beyond a disaster. And so here it sort of gets, it could optimize medically for the baby what happens, but also just the experience of the family going through it is a little bit more, I would say, uh, measured than sort of emergent in that sense. And that's a pretty important aspect of all this is sort of planning. For, I would say, a minority of patients, sometimes we'll find something which is so horrible that it's maybe incompatible with life or any quality of life and patients choose to terminate. But that's not the reason we do the ultrasound. It's not like we're doing an ultrasound to find babies to terminate. It's to really improve outcomes for babies and, you know, again, again, A, give reassurance, or B, for some babies, try to improve outcomes. Unfortunately, there are situations where we pick up things that are really exceptionally bad outcomes and bad prognoses, and, you know, people make different decisions about that. But again, mostly it's reassurance or for planning for before birth, during birth, or after birth, as you said. Like, if you pick out some common stuff that we see, for example, a club foot, which is when you, the foot, instead of just being flat underneath, is kind of angled over, and the kid will have difficulty walking and ambulating and so on. If if you found that, or if you found a cleft lip, which is where the lip has a defect right in the middle or the palate, those are common things that we, you know, one of the more common things that we will be able to f- detect. And if you think about it from the patient's perspective, they, they can get this information early on in the pregnancy, can make sure there's nothing else wrong with their child, make sure that every other part of the baby looks fine. If they need to, get some genetic testing done to make sure that it's not part of something bigger. And if you think about it, they're also able to meet their future, you know, person who's going to take care of club foot. And patients go right on the internet, look up this way, that way, and find a doctor, go meet the doctor, even before the child comes out. If it's cleft lip, they're all you know, scared and what's the baby going to look like and all this stuff. But you can actually go to doctors who can show you pictures of what they do and past experiences and stuff. You think about it, it's so nice to be able to, for the patient to be able to have all that information in advance rather than go through, you know, the craziness as you described, you know, at labor in labor delivery when they find they see something wrong and then they're, you know, adding a lot of problems going, yeah. going crazy. And it's such a hard time because not, not only is it condense all of that processing from weeks or months into hours, but you know, it's you're talking about parents who have a newborn and a woman just went through birth, so she's physically, you know, it's it's hard. It's a very difficult time to sort of be dealing with these things new. You know, having a normal quote unquote ultrasound 
does not mean that that scenario can't happen, right? There are things that we can miss. Uh, some things are more classically missed than others, either because they're difficult to see, which happens like in all babies. There's some things like we can't visualize the esophagus, for example. It's just, it's just not something you can see by ultrasound, so certain things you won't know. Other times, it's things that we can see in some women and not others. For example, sometimes if a woman's a woman has a, is, is heavier, it's sometimes harder to see certain aspects of the baby or sometimes in twins, you can't see things or, you know, sometimes the baby's position was just never in a good way to see certain organs. And, you know, that's a reason. And other times, because there are organs that change over the course of pregnancy. So for example, when we see that the, the heart is structurally normal at 20 weeks, right? There's four chambers, the valves are there, the walls are there, everything's in the right place, pointing in the right direction. So that's not going to change from the middle of pregnancy to the end. But sometimes the function of the heart can change. How is it pumping? What's the rhythm? Things like that. So sometimes, even if it was normal at 20 weeks, there are certain things that can change in pregnancy, which could be the reason for something new at birth. But for the most part, particularly for major abnormalities, things like big heart defects, brain defects, spina bifida, you know, limb defects, things of that sort. It's unusual to miss them at 20 weeks. It happens, but it's unusual. And so most families will know about it in advance and have a lot of information before the baby's born, which I've always found to be helpful in the situation, which it's never great. I mean, families, it's, it's very difficult to go through that situation, but it's definitely less difficult when you have more time. Correct. They can research it, kind of get their head wrapped around what's happening, have some familiarity with, with what, and if you think about it, they can also kind of have an expectation of what will likely occur. Right. You know, they're going to do an ultrasound. They're going to do this. They're going to check to see if that. Prognosis is another thing. I mean, our take a heart defect, for example. I mean, when we suspect there's an abnormality in the heart and we look at the heart, you know, 45,000 different ways, and then... If we suspect there's an abnormality, we have them meet very shortly thereafter with a pediatric cardiologist who does, they do an ultrasound themselves, but not only are they going to talk to the patient about what they see, they'll tell her, well, we take care of these children. Here's what to expect. What is the chance your child will need surgery? And if so, what are the outcomes from that surgery? How many you know babies after that surgery survive and survive and are healthy and live long, healthy lives? Or if the baby doesn't need surgery... Will the baby have a heart condition for life or will they grow out of it? And this is information parents want to know. I mean, to say, you know, my child has a heart defect is such a wide range between the small hole in the heart that's going to close and your baby will need nothing ever for his or her life compared to someone who's going to need a heart transplant. And, you know, there's everything in between. And so getting that information to be more precise about what to expect, even in childhood and, and potentially adulthood, is just so important to trying to make decisions about what to do and where and when. Same thing with, with you know, spina bifida. When we had a big case last year where, you know, the neurosurgeons, she met with the neurosurgeons way in advance, months after month after month of meeting with them and meeting with us back and forth. But that patient got a lot of information. So she, she really kind of knew what to expect. You know, what are the what are the long term, short term, what have you seen before? What kind of cases have you had before? from those people and they just just did a fabulous job with that kid. But the patient knew what was happening way early and got lots of time to plan and so on. What are the things we look at? So if you were to, you know, sort of go through head to toe, I mean, just so our listeners understand how comprehensive this 
assessment is it usually takes like 30 to 60 minutes for a typical when well, 30 minutes is fast if like we see everything quickly and but it could definitely up to 60 minutes and we're this is really just on the baby and so what, what do we look at maybe starting you know head to toe what kind of you know what organs are we looking at it's going to go through all of the systems more or less for the cns for the for the central nervous system which is the brain and the spine if you start up in the head there's a whole bunch of landmarks that we use that should be be there, should be visible. You know, there's a cerebellum in the back of the brain. That's that this helps how it helps us balance. There is in the middle of the in the brain, there's a central piece where there's a connection from one side of the brain to the other. You want to be able to see that. Um, there are channels of cerebral spinal fluid, which are little little holes actually that are supposed to be in the head, where these where the central the cerebral spinal fluid flows. And you want to see those, they want to look right, and you look at the lobes themselves, make sure that, that they look normal. Look at the skull itself, make sure the bones are all formed correctly. And then you go down the spine, and down the spine, you should be able to see you know, that the spine is closed all of the way down. And, and that's, that's that. And then as you go further down, you go into the chest. At the heart, as you already mentioned, you want to be able to see that the four chambers are there. Slowly over time, we've added on a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more other views than just the four chambers because it's you know, been found over time that if you just get a few extra views of the heart, you can largely rule out anything wrong with that heart, that the kids should come out, should have a very functional and good heart for life. And so we also then are checking vessels, checking the, the outflows from the heart because some of the blood from the heart goes into the lungs and some of the heart, the fluid, the blood that's coming out of the heart goes all the way into the system. So then you will check those two outflows. You'll check the main aorta, make sure that it's big enough and functional and going all the way down, down to down toward the lower part of the baby. You look in the lung area, make sure the lungs themselves look fine. You want to make sure the diaphragm is one piece all sealed off because what can happen is there can be what we call a hernia where there'll be a little hole and some of the some of the bowel can go up into the lungs. You want to make sure that the bowel is down below and the lungs are up above and everything is in the right place. And then when you go down in the, into the abdomen, you're just going to kind of check the systems, make sure the GI system is good, make sure the GU, which is genitourinary system, are good. For the bowel, you obviously want to see a stomach. You want to be able to see that the rest of the bowel has a, has, has a kind of a uniform look to it. You can't really see the bowel that's just dilated up until later in pregnancy where you can see the bowel more clearly. For the kidneys, super important. Make sure everything looks good there. You want to see two kidneys that are the right size and right shape. And you want to see that the urine that the kidneys produce is coming out correctly and then running down the little connections to get to the bladder. Make sure the bladder looks okay and the right size and so on. You'll also be looking at the, the extremities. You'll, you'll look for, make sure that there are four extremities, that you see all the bones, the bones look appropriate. You want to look at the hands and make sure that you can see the, you know, all the fingers, everything looks, looks normal. Any of these things that we're looking at, if they become abnormal, then we got to think, okay, is there anything else wrong with this kid? Go through the hands, go through the feet, make sure the feet look correct. I mean, it's pretty comprehensive. I mean, we look at, we basically look at everything that's there to look at. And in addition to the baby, we're also looking at the uterus, the fluid, the placenta. I mean, if we can, the mom's ovaries. I mean, there's a lot of things we look at, but what I think is so important in what you're talking about is number one, 
you know, how comprehensive it is. And that's sort of a double-edged sword. On the one side, it's really great because then everything looks normal. You get so much reassurance. You know, you can see the heart looks good. The kidneys look good. The brain looks good. The spine looks good. You know, the arms, the legs. I mean, there's so much you see and it's so reassuring when it looks normal. But the the flip side to that is there's so much opportunity to find something that's minor, right? So obviously if you see a major abnormality, like a big deal, all right, that's a that's a serious conversation. Here's what we see. It may mean a genetic problem, maybe this, we have to do this. You know, that that's a situation. But when you look at something so closely, what if some measurement's slightly too big or slightly too small? Or what if something is slightly too bright or something not bright enough? Or what if that fluid area is a little bit more filled than it normally would be? So the problem is we don't always know at that time, is that a problem or is it just a variation, right? If you look at everybody, we're all slightly different, you know, like we have different heights and different weights and our eyes are different, you know, width apart from each other and our arms are different lengths. And so you're trying to determine, is this just a variation of normal or is this an abnormality? And I think that what happens a lot, right, when someone has an, a normal ultrasound pretty straightforward. It's normal. You're great. Have a good day. If there's a very abnormal ultrasound or something markedly abnormal, an obvious abnormality, a clear abnormality, it's a very difficult situation, obviously, but it's not unclear usually, right? Like we're pretty, like we're clear. The baby has spina bifida. It's a problem. Here's why it's a problem. Here's what we need to do or whatever. And so again, it's a very troubling situation, but it's not vague. The problem is there's so much in between. And this is, I find a lot of times when women get very distressed unnecessarily or confused by their doctors. And we frequently see a lot of second opinions for things in this regard. And it's important for everyone to have perspective that there are variations in how babies look, even though, like we said, things are remarkably similar. There's some variation. And so it's our job to help women understand which things we think are a big deal and a real problem versus which things we think are probably just variation. And how are we going to be more sure about that? Meaning when I say I see something, it doesn't mean it's a problem. It just means I see something and I just want to make sure that it's just a variation and normal as opposed to a problem. And how you have that conversation with someone can change the entire tenor of the pregnancy from one that is you know, reassuring and relaxed and sort of, as you would expect, versus terrifying. And it's hard to do. It's not easy because this is a very high stress situation for people because we're talking about their babies. It's a big deal. Those conversations can be very long. And and, and sometimes they need to be. And that's why we, we, we try to do them seated at a table, meaning we don't like to have these conversations while a woman is still on the ultrasound table having her scan. That's a very difficult way for her to hear and speak and speak her mind and process and ask questions. You really want to be sitting at a desk, door closed, plenty of time. Sometimes it requires coming back or speaking on the phone later because, you know, that initial shock, even if it isn't a, a quote unquote big issue, it may feel that way to a woman. So it's hard to process sometimes. And I think that, you know, I, we spend a lot of time trying to reassure people that the things we're finding aren't really problematic and trying to sort of explain that 
as opposed to trying to, you know, convince someone that there's a problem and they're not getting it. It just doesn't, it, it's almost always trying to help people work through something that probably isn't a problem. I think what you're describing is, is also just good medicine. You know, good medicine is where the physician and the patient sit and have time to properly communicate, you know, what's going on. You know, sometimes I'll actually ask the patient, tell me what you're thinking. Right. Because if, I, if I'm looking at them and I can see that she's freaking out and she's really thinking about her mother, what her mother's going to say or whatever, I like stop and just give them a moment. Just like, tell me what you're, tell me what you're thinking about. Because, you know, you can't just blast the information to the patient. And so good medicine is really like stopping and listening and communicating and ensuring that the patient really understands and has time to answer all of her questions. And as you say, you're right. Sometimes they can't even get it the first time. They're literally, can you say it all over again? It's, it's hard. You know, one of the interesting things about what we do is so we're, you know, when you do maternal fetal medicine, you are an OBGYN. You do take care of patients. You know how to deliver babies. I mean, some do, some don't, but like you've gone through that training, but we're also partially radiologists, right? We're doing ultrasound and we're, you know, interpreting ultrasound and doing ultrasound. And it's a little bit different because, you know, when people go to a radiologist, for the most part, the radiologist, he or she has nothing to do with the treatment of that condition, right? They say, okay, you have appendicitis. The radiologist isn't going to operate on you, right? Or you have, uh, you know, I'm seeing, I don't know, evidence of Crohn's disease. Like they're not going to manage your Crohn's disease. It doesn't work like that. But the unique thing is in what we do, we're both diagnosing and treating, whether it's the mom, the baby, we're involved in that whole process. So we have the the opportunity, and I would say the privilege to be able to do the imaging and then right away sit down and speak to the patient, not only about what we're seeing, but what we're going to do about it, uh, you know, further testing or treatments or whatever. Whereas frequently, if you're going to a radiologist, and I'm not knocking the radiologist for this, it's just the nature of what they do and what they're trained to do is you go there, you get a test, and then you walk out the door and you don't even know what the results are, right? You have no idea what's going Like they do a CAT scan and you leave, you're like, do I have a tumor? Like you don't even know sometimes and until you see your doctor two or three days later and they get the report from the radiologist and they go over with you. But it, typically in what we do, it's not like that. You come in, you're going to get your results on the spot. The doctor's going to talk to you about it. What did we find? Again, usually it's everything looks normal. You're good. Come back at this time or don't come back or whatever. And if there's some concern, whether it's small, medium, large, whatever, we'll talk to you about it. Say, here's what it is. Here's what we need to do. Here's what tests we need to run. And then we speak to their doctor, you know, their OBGYN, and we, and we sort of loop everything together. But that's one of the nice things about how we are able to do that just based on our training that's not just the imaging, but it's also the management. Absolutely. And then, and then I would argue also, you also just learn from the cases, from the patients, oh, you yeah. know, how things went. You know, I've had patients who who come back and say, you know, you know, would you do it all over again? And I'm thinking they think, you know, it was horrible. It didn't really work very well or whatever. And they are absolutely, totally good with everything that happened. You, you just learn that that what I think may not be at all what the patient's thinking. And you just need to have an open mind and sit with them and give them the best information you can and let them ask questions, you know, you know, or or see where they're coming from, and have an open mind as to as to where they want to go. Yeah, I mean, I I, to I totally agree. It's such an interesting 
thing because, you know, I mean, pregnancy itself is obviously fascinating. Just the idea of pregnancy is so fascinating. And maybe I think that because it's what I do, you know, <laughs> it's my life. Uh, but I just, it's such a unique experience where you have, you know, a woman who's, she is who she is, she's healthy, she's got issues, whatever. And now suddenly she's pregnant and there's this like person growing inside of her. And not only are we trying to keep an eye on how she's doing, which is critical, but now we're also trying to make sure that her baby's okay. And so we have this idea, this ultrasound and the anatomy ultrasound, and the technology's gotten so good. And we can see such amazing detail, which number one is awesome because we can see these things. Number two, it's still humbling how it doesn't tell us everything, right? How something looks does not tell you how it's going to function potentially. So there's definitely humility in that. But also this idea that when women are coming for anatomy ultrasound, it really, number one, it's 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 a serious, you know, exam that we're doing. It's, you know, again, for most people, it ends up being, oh, the baby looks cute. We'll get some pictures. Everything looks great. It's a happy, smiley day. But we're doing a real thorough check. I mean, we're looking at everything. And, you know, there is that potential that we're going to find something. Hopefully, it's not something that is significant to the baby's health and well-being and future and, and that, obviously. And all of those things that we find, it's so important to have a real open conversation with the doctor. Like, what exactly are you seeing? What does it mean? Is this a problem? Is it not? What do we need to do to find out if it's a problem or not? Are there more tests I need to do? Do I have to come back? And sort of to get as much information and to have those conversations. But it's not a test we should expect. You just walk in and walk out and get nothing. There should be some feedback. Either everything looks good or I have some concerns, or I have big concerns, and to sort of go from there. And fortunately, the people who do this every day are trained to do that. Like, we're not just looking, we're actually interpreting and helping to manage these conditions. As I say, you learn you learn through and through patients. I'm thinking back to when I was a fellow where there was a patient who, who they found an abnormality in the brain. The patient's like, that's fine. No problem at all. Don't, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just having my baby. And and it wasn't even my thing. I think it was actually our our chairman or our boss, Dr. Shervanak's patient. And the kid comes back and and he sees he sees this kid. You know, three years later, and the kid is walking and doing totally totally fine. Right. So the patient like, I'm okay with it. Leave me alone. We're good. And just 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 let them do what they want to do, and you will learn. And then and then that opens up your mind as to you know the ethics and and what you you know. What right. do we really know? How much should we really say? Right. You know, do we really know that this is a problem? Are we sure the diagnosis is right? As you're saying, the second opinions, do you really know, you know, that this is abnormal? And then if it's abnormal, do we really know whether that's going to cause a problem? And as you say, we got to be humble. Might not be a problem. Wow. Steve, I really appreciate this. This is a, this is a great conversation. And it's, um, again, something you and I do almost every day of the week. And it's always fascinating. I mean, we have great great jobs. I mean, it's just a, it's just an amazing, you know, field of medicine to work in. There's a lot, lot coming with this. We're going to keep learning and, you know, getting more information and hopefully keep making our uh, abilities to diagnose and predict and all these things just better and better. But thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about this. I really appreciate you it. You right, see, it we'll have pleasure. you on again. Hopefully Thank I you. can do this face-to-face one time. Sure. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, 
please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.